0: In 8th grade, I, so I don't know if this is a thing around here, but in 8th in grade where I'm from, they, they have this thing where they take all of the 8th graders and you do a trip to Washington DC. Is that a thing around here? Okay, so I think this is a pretty terrible idea actually, the way that it's executed. But So you take a bunch of 8th graders, this is how we did it. We took a bunch of 8th graders and they put us on a charter bus And we left at like five o'clock in the afternoon and we drove all through the night to get to like Gettysburg so we literally drove for like 18 hours and you've got a bunch of eighth graders boys and girls together on a bus for like 15-16 hours through the middle of the night and then you show up in Gettysburg and they're like trying to teach you about history like Nobody's, I'm not learning anything at this point. I'm exhausted. Like, I just want to hang out with my friends. But anyways, we do, we do that trip. One thing I remember from the trip is they took us to George Washington's home, Mount Vernon. So Mount Vernon's this beautiful place where, you know, George Washington had his big... He had... There's a river and there's all these... It's beautiful, right? He's, he's got the gardens and... Who knows what it looks like... What it looked like then, but... Now it's beautiful. So, George Washington, in some of his writings, he used a phrase from the Bible, and that's the phrase we're going to work on. That we're going to focus on today. The phrase that he used um, it, it mentions. So he mentions this desire several times to to sort of retire and to sit under his his own vine and his fig tree. So we're going to look today at what that means in scripture. But for George Washington, what that meant was you know, he had dedicated his life to service to the country and he was ready to just go and be at Mount Vernon, to go and relax and to go and live off the land. And it represented this, this break from like civic and professional duty to where he could just go live off the land and be a farmer and take care of himself. Um, so he mentioned this phrase several times. So I say all that to say um, I have this kind of weird habit when I work. So I work from home and I I do a lot of independent type of work, like I'm not in meetings all day long, so while I'm working, I like to listen to music. Um, And some of the music I like to listen to, and just don't, like, I hope this doesn't affect the way you think about me too much, but I like to listen to musicals, so I like to listen to Hamilton. Anybody a fan of Hamilton? Have you seen it? Okay, great, like, it's, it's good. Well, in the musical, the the character George Washington as he's retiring near the end of like the second act he mentions this phrase about the vine and fig tree and so i'd love to tell you that this morning's message is inspired by my reading in god's word it's actually inspired by my listening to a, a musical while I work. So that's the that's how that's how we got to where we are today. So we're gonna look at the vine and fig tree sort of as a phrase, and then we're gonna sort of do a word study of of vine and fig tree. And we definitely don't have time to look at every mention of vine and every mention of fig tree. So we're gonna sort of we're gonna take the ones that that are exemplary, I guess you could say. So let's do this first. Let's go to first Kings chapter 4. And 1 Kings chapter 4, just a little bit of context. So right now, you know that we're, we're, we're studying the book of 2 Samuel, and David is king. And David's reign is marked by warfare, right? So David is a conquering king. David expands the kingdom. There's constantly war. Like every chapter in, in David's life, you just see war and fighting and and conflict, right? So they can establish the land, they can clear the enemies out. But one thing that's beautiful once we get past that and in the first Kings is is you see King Solomon takes the throne. And King Solomon's reign is is marked not by warfare, but it's actually marked by peace. So in first Kings chapter four, Solomon has already done the thing where he prays to God for wisdom. So that has happened. And we've already seen the the like famous trial where the, the two women are fighting over the kid. And, you know, King Solomon says, we'll cut the kid in half and we'll see which one to give it to. And so Solomon's wisdom is already being displayed. So we get to 1 Kings chapter 4. Solomon's on the throne. Here's the testimony of his reign or of his kingdom. It says, For he had dominion over all the region on this side, the river, from Tifsa even to Aza, over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on all sides round about him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. So, de- so again, Solomon's reign is marked by peace. And the, 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 the image that we get, what we want to start thinking about is the fact that it says, every man dwelt under his own vine, under his vine and under his fig tree. So I want us to think about this Place this being under our own vine and fig tree as a place of plenty. Like it's a place where we have resources, um, physical, spiritual resources. It's a place of protection. It's a place the, the vine represents and the fig tree represent peace and protection and safety. And then it's a place of peace. It's a place where, where we can exist um, without the threat of the enemy coming in to destroy us. This is not a message, I need to make this clear, it's not a message about how to retire and like kind of ride off into the sunset. It's, it's not a message about how to like save things up so that one day you can relax and be at peace, right? And get your retirement home and, and, and kind of take it easy. Um, that's not what this message is about. It's also not a message about like how to get lots of stuff, because I think there can be this perception of, oh, I've got, I'm under my vine and fig tree, I'm safe, I've built my little home, I've built my, my um, retirement savings, I've built my checking account, like all is good, I have the stuff that I need. It's not a message about that. This is really about the way that we approach life. So, so the Bible says that at one point we were all enemies with God. Okay, so King David's reign is, is marked by all this turmoil and all this fighting. And so there's all this fighting, right? And then Solomon's reign is marked by peace. And I w- we just need to know that as believers, we come from that place. We come from a place of peace with God. Romans 5.1 says that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is peace there. And in some sense, some sense that is us in our vine and under our fig tree. Like We've got it. We're there. At the same time, we're going to have turmoil, we're going to have tribulation, we're going to have difficulty in this life. And so operating from this place of, hey, I'm under my vine and under my fig tree, it's, it's a way that we operate our lives in light of even spiritual reality. So we know that, okay, I have peace with God, that war is over, that war has been fought, that battle is done and over, my sins are paid for, but now the battle is against my flesh and it's against the devil and it's against the world. And how can I operate from a place of peace knowing that all of that is still going on? So that's, that's the kind of frame of reference that I want us to think about. So let's first talk about the vine. We, we won't turn here, but the first time you see the word vine in Scripture is in Genesis chapter 40. It's verses 9 and 10. So in Genesis chapter 40, this is when Joseph's in prison, and Joseph has a dream, right? And there's a, there's a butler... And there's um, a baker, right? Or a cupbearer. And so the butler dreams of this vine that buds and blossoms. And then the butler becomes restored, right? And so we see right away that the vine is a symbol of life. It's a symbol of health. It's a symbol of prosperity. So as you see the vine in Scripture, that's what it is. That's what it represents. But I want to go and spend a, a good chunk of time in 2 Kings chapter 18. So, if you would turn to 2 Kings chapter 18, um, we're in a spot. So, again, we had David's kingdom, and then we have Solomon's kingdom. And and really, after Solomon, everything kind of falls to pieces. Everything goes south, right? The kingdom is divided, it's split, um, there's turmoil, there's war, there's fighting, there's all of this difficulty. So, in 2 Kings chapter 18, this king of Assyria is out conquering, right? He's out conquering. And what he does, so the king of Syria sends this guy named Rabshakeh, and they are, they are surrounding the city of Jerusalem. So they have it under siege. So the enemy, picture the enemy is outside the gates, and the city is under siege. And the king sends this guy, Rabshakeh, and he's going to start shouting out, things. like his job is to convince the people inside the walls to just give up. Like, we don't want to fight you. We can and will, but it will be easier if you just give up. So this is the context. So look at verse 28. It says, Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language, and spake, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, Let not Hezekiah... Hezekiah is the the Israelite king at this point. He says, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. "...neither let Hezekiah make your trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me. And then eat ye every man of his own vine, and every one of his fig tree, and drink ye every one of the waters of his cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive oil and of honey that ye may live and not die, and hearken not unto Hezekiah when he persuadeth you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Okay, so, again, we've got this guy, Rabshakeh, he's come to the people and he's saying, hey, Hezekiah the king, he said he could deliver you, he said you should trust God, he said that, um, that, that you'll be able to, to defend yourself against us, but that's not true, that's actually not going to happen. And so what I want to talk today about a little bit is about the, the lies that the enemy is going to tell us. So one of the lies that the enemy is going to tell us is that God is not strong enough to deliver us. Okay, so he says this. He says, um, in verse 30, he says, the Lord will not surely deliver. De- okay, he says, neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying the Lord will surely deliver us. He's saying, God can't do that for you. God can't deliver you from whatever situation that you're in. He's saying the enemy is actually stronger than God, so this is what the enemy tells us. Hey, um, God can't take care of you, um, but I can. Here's what the enemy is offering in this passage. So we have this image of this vine and fig tree that's full of spiritual life, and that it comes from the Lord. The enemy is offering us a fake version of that. So the enemy comes in this passage, and he says... Hey, you know, God can't actually give you what you need. Um, The second lie is that God's not trustworthy. He said that he would let you dwell in safety, but that's not true. Come over to my side. Like, give in to me. Sell yourself out to me. And guess what? You can have peace. You can have prosperity. I'll let you sit under your vine. I'll let you sit under your fig tree. And I think... So when we think about this, in the short term, it's almost always easier to make a deal with the devil, right? So the people of Israel have this choice, like, we can make a deal with the enemy, and that's going to look, that's easy right now. We don't have to fight. We don't have to stand. We don't have to pray. We don't have to be disciplined. We don't have to fast. We'll just give in to what the enemy is asking us to do. Easy in the short term. In the long term, what Rabshakeh says is, give yourself over to us. I'll let you live in peace. Oh, but then I'm going to take you away to a, to a land that's not your own. It's a nice place, but it's not where you're supposed to be. I think that these are the types of temptations that we're faced with all the time. Um, hey, you don't need to trust God. Do it this other way. Do it the way the world does, and it'll be fine. It'll be good. Think about Jonah. Jonah does this, right? Jonah is told to go to a specific place. And he says, yeah, I think I'd rather do it my way because God's way is uncomfortable. I don't really trust God. God, you're not really strong enough to deliver these people, so I'm going to go do my own thing. And we all know where Jonah ends up. And I, I, would, I would offer to us this morning that whenever we decide to sell out, to, to not do things God's way, sometimes it's easier in the short term. And then we end up in the belly of the whale. We end up in a really bad place, far from where God wants us to be. So the devil tells us, the enemy tells us that God's not strong enough to deliver us. The enemy tells us that God's not trustworthy. And, 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 and this is so true in our lives, right? Like we trust God when everything's going great, when everything's nice, when everything's easy. But when the enemy's at the gate, when, when the enemy is whispering in our ear, when temptation is at the door, that's when it's easy to think, well, God, maybe, maybe I'll just give in this once. Or maybe, maybe you're not actually trustworthy. Like, I'll just trust in my own thing. The enemy tells us that God's not strong enough and we can't trust Him. The enemy just says, hey, just join me. Give in to your flesh. Like, the, the enemy says, you can't really trust God for your for your family member's salvation. You can't really trust God to, to change your kids' hearts. You can't really trust God to, to get over that sin or that temptation. Just give in to me. I'll make it easy for you. The third lie that the enemy is selling here and that sells to us is that we don't need God for our peace, for our protection, and for our plenty, right? The enemy has a vine and a fig tree. The enemy has a life that he wants to offer us that seems like it's full of peace, that seems like we're safe. It makes it seem like we have all that we need. But this passage makes it clear that in order to get that, all you have to do is sell out. All you have to do is sell your soul. Sell your soul to the devil, and he's going to make your life really nice in the short term. I think we can easily get trapped by sort of this, what I would call the American dream. The American dream is, I'm going to build up for my own self a life of peace and of plenty, of protection and safety. Those things are very, very um, appealing. So when I, when I was a teacher years and years ago, um, there, was a, there was a big school shooting. I think it was out in New York, the Sandy Hook school shooting incident, maybe you've heard of it, and so that, that happened on like a Monday or something, and it was awful, so we had like a staff meeting the next morning, and because everybody in education then is talking about safety, and and how do we protect ourselves from this type of incident happening again, and it, it's a real concern, right, like you're in a classroom with 20 kids, and things can things can go wrong, so The building that we worked at had, it was an old building, so it wasn't set up for safety and security. Like there was, the entrance was on the ground floor and the office was up here on the next floor. So you came in and it was like a split level. You could go up to the office or you could go down. So what they did is they installed um, a door lock with a camera and like a buzzer system. So if I want to come into the building, I hit the buzzer and then the secretary upstairs, her job is to look at me, see if I'm credible and see if I'm you know, not carrying weapons, and then let me in. Well, I'm in the, I was in the office a bunch, um, just going in and out, talking to the secretaries and stuff, and the secretaries would be at their desk working, and they're typing away. And, and you would hear the doorbell ring, and there was a little buzzer, there was a little camera right here that they could look at, because they're supposed to look at the person, so they'd be typing away, ding, 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 and they would, they would literally do this, left door, left door, they didn't even look. So. Our, our principal made the point that really what we had at the school was the illusion of safety. And he literally told us that. And I, like, I'm a teacher in the classroom thinking, could you do a little better? Like, yeah. I think I want more than the illusion of safety. But our building, just the way it was set up and we didn't have resources, like, that's what it was. It was just the illusion of safety. And when we create our own little world of peace and prosperity and plenty and, and protection, it's really just the illusion of what God really wants for us. It's really just the shallow, temporary version of the more lasting, eternal type of investment that God wants us to make. Proverbs 17.1 says, Better is a dry morsel and quietness therewith than a house full of sacrifices with strife. And so, take a dry morsel and have some quietness in your home, and that's better than having much and having strife. So I think a, a major deception that the world sells us is that our life should focus on this accumulation of riches. Um, we, people always end up selling out. Again, I want to say there's nothing wrong with work. There's nothing wrong with money. Um, we just can't let those things gain control over our lives and try to build this perfect little environment that is devoid of any spiritual depth, that is maybe full of strife. Like, I would rather have crusty bread to eat and peace in my home than to have all the food we need and a ton of strife and difficulty. That's the verse from Proverbs. That's Proverbs 17.1. Proverbs 28.6 says, Better is the poor that walketh in his uprightness than he that is perverse in his ways, though he be rich. And the Bible's clear. You can get rich. We see it all over our world. You can get rich. The question is, at what cost? To close out this point, Mark chapter 8, verse 36 says, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? You can have the world, but at what cost? You can give your kids the world, but at what cost to you and your kids? We need to consider these things. All right, let's as we move on through the Old Testament, we see the vine and the fig tree, and sometimes they're used together in the same passage, and sometimes they're separate. So we, we see this, this idea that the enemy can, can present a version of this ideal place that God wants us to be in. The enemy can present that ver- a version of that to us, but it's shallow, it won't last. Um, I want to look at a few other passages about the vine, and then we'll, we'll move on to the fig tree. So in the book of Joel, you actually see this quite a bit in the minor prophets. You see um, God using the vine and the fig tree in sort of this, this agricultural, agrarian type of language to, to, to paint pictures. So in Joel chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, it says, For a nation has come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion. And... And he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. He hath laid my vine waste and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean bare and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. So you see this all throughout scripture, that rebellion against God is going to lead to desolation. Rebellion against God is going to lead us to a place where, okay, we've got a vine, but there's nothing on it. I'm living my life, but it's completely fruitless. It's completely, um, I don't want to say pointless, but at, for the, at, for these purposes, like if you plant a vine, you want some grapes from it. If you plant strawberries, you want some strawberries from it. We were just talking about this on the way in today. My parents live on like 15 acres, and they, they've got this place, and they literally, they have this like, Trellis thing set up, and when they moved in, there were there were these grapes growing, and it's like, oh, we're gonna have grapes, and they've lived there at least ten years now. There's never once been a single grape on these vines. I'm like, mom, kill it. Like, just it's not serving any purpose. Like, what's what's the point of it, right? And so, I think that that vine is in rebellion against God or something. I, I don't know why it doesn't work, but we see this all throughout the scripture that as God's people, so God's promise is, follow me, stick with me, don't sell out, obey my commands, and I will make you fruitful. I'm going to give you a land that's actually full of fruit, and then it's going to keep producing, but rebel against me, and I'm going I'm I'm to wipe it all out. Joel chapter 2, so this, this analogy, this, this picture continues. Joel 2 verse 12 says, therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning and rend your heart and not your garments and turn unto the lord your god for he is as gracious for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil so we see in joel chapter 1 the people have turned away from god the the passage we read in second kings where where the where the people are being called out and saying, Hey just turn just just turn against God. It's easy. I'll make life easy for you. Like a generation or two later they had given into that and they had done away with the Lord. They didn't need him anymore. And that led to desolation. But what like Joel chapter two, like we saw, God says, If you turn to me with fasting and weeping and mourning, and then he says, this is key, he says, and rend your heart and not your garments. So in, in that culture, if someone is in mourning, it was common for them. Uh, Brian Clark talked about this a couple weeks ago. In order to, to, to have an outward show of, of how mournful a person was, right, that person would rip their clothes. They would rent their clothes. But what Joel is proposing is that you actually rend your heart. So I can make it look like I'm repentive. I can make it look like my life is in order. I can make it look like I'm mournful or sorry by having this outward show of tearing my clothes. But what Joel says is, that actually needs to happen on the inside. And he continues it in Joel chapter 2. We might get a good beat here. This will be good. Joel chapter 2 verse 21 says, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice. For the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field. For the pastures of the wilderness do spring. For the tree beareth her fruit. The fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. So if rebellion against God leads to desolation, then repentance leads to fruit bearing. When the people repent, God promises to have pity and he promises to cause the vine and the fig tree to flourish and to be fruitful. And I, I, I know we have a big age range in our class. We have people, and so when we get when we get to Psalm chapter 128, our next passage, it's, it's talking a lot about parenting um, and how to raise kids. And and maybe you're thinking, well, that ship has sailed for me. Like my kids are old, they're grown, they're out of the house, or well, I, that's not going to be me. I would just like, to, and I would just like to offer hope here because Joel chapter two says. God can take what was desolate and he can make that fruitful. In your own life, in the lives of your children, in the lives of your loved ones, God can turn that around. It's never too late for God to come in and take what looks like a dead vine or a dead tree and give it life. God's in the business of doing those types of miracles. All right, Psalm 128. Let's look at the vine... In this context, Psalm 128, verse 1 says, Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways, for thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands. Happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house, thy children like olive plants round about thy table. So the psalmist here calls us to, to live in a certain way. And then he says, There's going to be some results. From that. The first thing he says is he says we need to fear the Lord. He says, Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord. So we worship the Lord, we reverence him, we give him his proper due. And then the second thing we do that he mentions in verse 1 also, he says, That walketh in his way. So we walk in the ways of the Lord, we obey God's word, we set our lives to walk with him. And then we labor. Right? He says, for thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands. So it's implied that we're working. Now, again, this isn't a message about work hard and get lots of money. This is, this is labor for the Lord. As we're fearing Him, as we're walking in His way, as we labor for Him, we're going to get the results. So let's look at the results. The results are a blessing. Right? He says, blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord. So we fear the Lord, we walk in His ways, we labor, we're going to be blessed, we'll have a blessing. The second blessing, the second thing that's promised in verse 3 says, thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine. So not only will you be blessed, but it says that your wife will flourish. So men, your worship and obedience to the Lord directly affect your wife's well-being. As the leader of the home, if, you're, if you don't fear and walk with the Lord, there's a really good chance that your wife is, at the very least, I would say, not flourishing, and she might be actually dying spiritually. As the leaders of the home, we are responsible for cultivating an environment where our wives flourish spiritually. I'm a big... Um, know I like to study and think a lot about culture and not well two different types like I'm I'm interested in 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 other cultures in terms of like races and ethnicities and locations and that but also when I talking about culture I'm interested in like the culture of a home or the culture of a business or the culture of of a group of people right like what kind of culture is there and um I read a few years ago, I read a book called The Culture Code, and this guy had done a, a deep study into, into various work environments and what creates the best type of culture. And he studied places like Pixar that are like, it's like a super successful business. Um, he studied um, if you're a basketball fan, the, the San Antonio Spurs, and the culture that they've created, and they, they had a pretty good winning streak um, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, but Anyways, he he mentions some some things that make up a good culture. So I'm I'm saying this because what the psalm says is that as the man walks with the Lord, as the man fears the Lord, as the man labors for the Lord, it says his wife will flourish. I would say that the the type of culture that we create in our homes is going to help is going to cause our wives and our children to flourish or not. So this study, what this guy comes up with, and just full disclosure, um, this isn't what the Bible says about culture. This is what this guy who studied company culture says. So just that's, that's the context. But he says that you need to build safety. So people know that they're safe. People know that they're protected. Like, I fully believe that, that people flourish the most when they know that they're loved, when they know that they're safe, when they know they've got, like, they're good, they're part of the group. The second thing he says is you have to share vulnerability. So, men, we need to share our weaknesses. We need to share what we're struggling with, even with our families. And then he says you need to establish purpose. And as we set the culture in our homes, I think that these are really useful and helpful things. Um, when I think about what, what does it take for a vine to flourish, I think it takes some structure, right? If I want to get a, a vine, there's got to be some kind of trellis, something for that to, to cling to. Um, there has to be some stability in that trellis. It can't just fall over, everything's going to die. There has to be some nourishment, some food, some water, some sunlight. And there has to be maybe even some pruning from time to time. And as men, we are responsible for creating that type of environment. And I would just say, who wouldn't want their wife to flourish? Like that only benefits the whole household. That only benefits everyone. So create that environment. I also know that some of you in this room are single. Some of you in this room, your husband or your wife doesn't follow the Lord, and so you're, you're creating or working in this environment all by yourselves. And I would say, um, reach out for help, but I, and I would also say, the Lord is with you. The Lord wants you to flourish even if there's not this kind of covering person. All right. The next thing, so in addition to our our wives flourishing, in addition to the wives being like a fruitful vine, it says that your children will be like olive plants round about thy table. So there's this idea also that as we fear the Lord and walk with him, that our children will flourish as well. Um, I think if, 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 you're, if we examine our lives and if we see that our, our wives aren't flourishing, that our children maybe aren't flourishing in the Lord the way that they could. As men, we have to really look at that and say, I'm responsible for that. I think it's easy to blame the kids, or it's easy to blame our wife, or it's easy to blame society, or, well, the school taught them this, or the teacher, or like, at the end of the day, God gave us our family, and we have to take care of them. We have to ensure that they flourish. When I think about the kids... Being like an olive plant, man. Olive plants, these trees that produce olives, they're strong, right? They're they're established. Um, this is the only like comment I'll make about this because I could get on this soapbox and you wouldn't want to hear it all. But, um, and I, I say this at the risk of sounding like my dad, <laughs> but he's not watching. <laughs> kids today are soft like and I know that when I was a kid the older generation said that about my generation like I know that that's happened every generation but kids are so weak like we use that you that term snowflake is used to describe people Um, and when I think of a snowflake I don't think of strength I think of like well that's gonna melt that's weak like Create an environment where your kids can flourish and be strong. Create an environment where they're like olive trees. They're fruitful. They serve a purpose. They have purpose. They give some shade. They give some protection. All these things that come from a tree, man, invest in your kids so that they can be like this olive tree. Okay. Off the soapbox. Let's move on to the fig tree. So we've we've looked at the vine and fig tree together and and kind of what the enemy can offer us in terms of a, a like an alternative version than what God wants to give us. But then we've seen how how the vine and what it's supposed to do and what it's supposed to be. Right? The vine is supposed to be this thing that flourishes, this thing that protects, this thing that provides and gives fruit. The fig tree. So the first mention of fig tree, I don't have it in your notes, but the first mention of the fig is when Adam and Eve sin and they use fig leaves to cover themselves, to cover up their sin. The next time you see fig in Scripture is in Deuteronomy chapter 8, when God is projecting forward to, to what the promised land will look like. He says it's going to be a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. So again, we see the fig tree and the vine as this picture of prosperity, this this sign of of what's to come in the promised land. So I want to look at two examples from Scripture of fig trees. The first one is the fruitless fig tree from Matthew chapter twenty-one. This is the story uh, that I think it's in it's in all the Gospels, or it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this is this is Jesus pretty close. To before, right before um, the crucifixion, right, like he's he's traveling in and out of Jerusalem, and on the way as he's traveling, he sees this fig tree. So Matthew twenty one, it says, and when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only, and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marvelled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? Why does, God, why does Jesus curse the fig tree? He curses the fig tree because it's not bearing fruit. John chapter 15 says that the Father, God, is glorified when we as Christians bear much fruit. Our responsibility in the Lord, we, we get saved, we're at peace with God. Our responsibility now is to walk in His ways, to fear Him, and to bear fruit, to get involved in ministry. It's our job, bless you, it's our job, right, to be bearing spiritual fruit for the Lord. And I would just say, we have a culture at this church that promotes flourishing, that promotes spiritual growth and spiritual life, that promotes ministry. So jump on, get on board. Like, be a part of the mission. It's the greatest calling that you'll ever have. Remember our story from 2 Kings and how the vine and fig tree offered by the world, they're temporary, right? They're going to last maybe until the end of this life. But the fig tree, the vine and the fig tree that, that bears fruit for the Lord, that's going to endure for eternity. The other thing I want to point out from Matthew chapter 21, so so the, the fig tree is... Jesus condemns it because there's no fruit on it, and then the disciples, their reaction, right, says, they marveled, saying, how soon is the fig tree withered away? So, we all know this, but this is a good reminder of the brevity of life. Life is so short, the Bible compares it to a vapor, a mist, it's there in the morning, and then it's gone. Um... Jesus talks about like the grass of the field, it grows up, and then it gets cut down and thrown into the fire, and it's over. So our lives as represented by a fig tree, and they don't last long. So, um, Solomon in Ecclesiastes talks about growing, building up of riches and things, and you know, he's kind of like, well, this is great that I have all this stuff, but when I die, it's just going to be given to somebody else. It's just going to go away. Like it's so, he uses that word vanity. It's empty. It's nothing. It's worthless. So we've got the fruitless fig tree that, you know, could represent our lives if if we're honest with ourselves. But then I want to end with the fertilized fig tree. So Luke chapter 13. So I grew up surrounded by cornfields. My house was surrounded on all sides, really, by just cornfields or beans. So the farmers would rotate every year, corn, beans, corn, beans. And um, all around where I grew up, there's cattle lots and pasture, and there's hog confinements. And it's pretty common to be driving or just outside, and you get a, a nice odor. And, and you, you quickly realize, like, if you're, you're driving past a certain spot and you look out, and there's a, a massive tank, and I, like, bigger than this room tank, and it's 10 feet deep or whatever, and it's full of manure. Like, it's just full of the stuff, right? My, my grandpa had cattle, and like, pretty small amount, but there were times throughout the year where they would, my uncle would get in the loader tractor, And go into where the cattle were and scoop up the manure and dump it into the manure spreader and then the manure spreader and then drive that through the field and spread the manure. Like in those days were smelly and gross. Um, But you knew that there was some purpose, right? So this is something that farmers do. So look at Luke chapter 13, verse 6. It says. He spake also this parable. So Jesus is speaking a parable. He says, A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. It's a fruitless fig tree. It's, it's, it's no good. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? He's like, it's taking up space. Let's get rid of it. It's worthless verse 8, the dresser says, and he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So, we've got this vineyard, and you got a fig tree that has no fruit on it. And the, the guy that owns the vineyard, he's about business, right? Like, he wants fruit because that means money for him, and that's what's the point of a vineyard if there's no fruit? What's the point of a tree? What's the point of a fig tree if there's no figs on it? Like, get rid of it, right? But the dresser, the guy that takes care of the place says, "Let's give me a year, let me dig around it, and let me fertilize it. Now, it's interesting to me that we don't hear the conclusion of this story. Um, I've actually heard people say that it might be the same fig tree that Jesus condemns later, but I want to be more optimistic than that. Like I want to believe that this process of fertilization allowed the fig tree to be restored and to produce some fruit. So what I would propose to us today is that if we are fruitless, if there are fruitless areas of our lives, spiritually, we're not bearing fruit for the Lord. Maybe our kids aren't as flourishing as prosperous. Maybe our husband or our wives aren't as flourishing as as we want them to be. Our home environment isn't producing it. Our our work environment isn't producing fruit for the Lord. I would recommend that we need to dig up some things in our lives and we need to to put some manure in. We need to put some fertilizer in. Um, We need to cultivate, we we need to sow into the ground some fertilizer Like We need to sow in God's Word. We need to sow in some prayer. Maybe we even need someone else to do that in our lives. You notice the fig tree can't dig up the ground and put its own fertilizer in. It required somebody else to come in and dig around it and pour the fertilizer in. Maybe we need that connection. Maybe we need that relationship. We need that person, those people in our lives that are going to pour into us so that we can flourish so that we can grow. Because we have to remember, the fruitless fig tree, man, Jesus condemned it. Jesus wanted fruit. He desired fruit. I would even say He deserves fruit in our lives. So we have to be willing to do whatever it takes to produce that fruit. Maybe it's digging. Maybe it's getting to the bottom of some issues or problems or sin We dig down and we get to the bottom of those things and then we pour some fertilizer in the ground and allow that to seep in and allow that to affect the root system. And then all of a sudden, the tree, the plant becomes flourishing. So we've looked at the vine. We've looked at the fig tree. Um, We've seen that the world offers us a version of the vine and the fig tree that is temporary and that won't last. And we've seen the alternative. We've seen what it means to, when we walk with the Lord and when we fear Him and how that affects our family and the people around us. And we've seen at least one strategy for how we can get to where we're being fruitful. And so my prayer would be that we would desire that place, that we would desire to sit under that vine and under that fig tree. That we would live our lives and operate from a place where we have all that we need spiritually because we're full in Him. We're complete in Him. Where we have peace. Where we know that we have victory. And then um, finally that it would be a place where we would bear fruit as well. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning for your word. Um, God, you're a a wordsmith. You're You're a master at at teaching um, with pictures and words and, and imagery and the way that Jesus told stories and parables. Lord, it just relates. Um, it, it, it speaks right to us, and, and I'm really thankful for that. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to catch a vision for what it means um, to abide in you. Um, God, your word says that, that if we abide in you, that we'll bear much fruit, and that's what you want. So help us um, to abide. God, if there's things that we need to dig up, if there's things that we need Um, to examine in our lives or call other people in to examine and dig up so that we can bear fruit. Lord, help us to be willing to do that. Help us to endure the difficulty and the pain and the awkwardness of of that so that we can bear fruit for you. Help us to flourish in our personal lives at home. God, I pray that the men in the room, that we would create cultures and atmospheres in our home where where our wives and our children can flourish, Lord, where we can bear fruit um, for you. And, and God, I pray that when we're tempted to sell out and, and to grab a version of, of this vine and fig tree that, that is temporary, I pray that we wouldn't. I pray that we would hold fast to you and to your word and help us to invest um, in eternal things. God, thanks so much for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.